I want to turn uh, your attention now to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, which are the blessings, uh, nine Beatitudes in a row that Jesus gives at the front of his sermon should cause us to say, man, the Lord wants us to be joy-filled. Beatitude is Latin for happy or being glad, and um, he wants our gladness, but uh, it comes in a way that he wants it, not just gladness in and of itself, not as an experience, but joy in loving God. Joy is the overflow of a focus on him, just like we just sang. So we're looking at these Beatitudes, and in particular, we're looking at verse 6 this morning. I was joked a little bit in first hour about the slow pace I've been going, and I have been going slow, but this verse really slowed me down, and it's a target verse that can capture the entire Christian life and experience, and I don't want to miss what's, what's here for us, so I want our attention to be there. Look at verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for God. That's the theme. This is a massive verse to capture the Christian experience. It's indicting. It sort of strips away any religious pretense that you might have. Any facade of Christianity is kind of called on the carpet right now with a verse like this, with the question that Jesus is asking, which is, are you hungering and thirsting for God? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry for God? Food for the physical body is essential for survival. It's what, where we derive energy and strength. And if you're a child, you, you have to be nourished to grow, to be strong, and to develop. And in the same way, as a Christian, you need food to survive. You need food to sustain the nourished spiritual life that you were designed to live. He made you new as a new creature, as a newborn babe in Christ to long for pure milk, to eat of the word of God. Jesus Christ says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy of his kingdom. That's what he calls us to, to feast at his feet, to not just believe in a snapshot in time and then leave it aside, but to believe and, and then be hungry and be thirsty for God, to drink deeply of him to sit at his feet and worship. Now, at risk of trivializing all of this introduction and, and verse, I do want to bring things down to the basics of the Kratz household for a moment. Um, I had uh, an experience this, this uh, week where if you know me well, you know I'm really, really not the most handy person in the world. I don't ever remember taking the ASVAB test during high school, but I would have... Uh, been decimated by that. Um, our dishwasher was declared dead this week, and um, it just it died. I had made a pronouncement that uh, we were going to kind of start anew. There's seven of us still in that household, and so we're kind of racing around and, and doing our thing. We've got big dogs around, and, and there's a lot of eating and feeding and 
dishes and, and cleaning and dirtiness and stuff that has to be maintained there. And I made the declaration that we were going to keep the sink clear from now on. And I'm going to take charge of that. And, um, you know, Murphy's Law, if I believed in it, was in full swing because no sooner had I done that, we were humming and things are clean and Mission Control Center is, is happening. And then I get the error code right on my dishwasher and it's shutting itself down. Now, did I YouTube or not? Yes, yes, I did. I YouTubed. I found the error, error code. I diagnosed it. I, I learned enough from the little videos how to open everything up and clean out filters and degunk. I got a toothbrush after that thing. I was going after it, put it back together. It worked a little bit longer and then died again. Then it worked a little bit longer. Then it tricked me like it went a little bit longer and then it died. Error. And so with the great wash dishwasher minds of, uh, of my community, they came and looked it over and we all pronounced it dead. So um, got a new one of those. But the point that I'm making is that when, when dishes get backed up, you know, things begin to get apocalyptic. I mean, you're, you're, you have towers of dishes, right? Because I was discouraged. We, we kind of stopped everything. We're just eating and a couple meals in. You have like these leaning apocalyptic towers that are going to totter over of, of gunk and slime. And it's, it's the exact opposite of, of nourished health where you're, you're eating and you're drinking and you're cleaning it up and you're replenishing things and you're starting again, right? And you're eating and you're meal planning and you're putting out the food and you're cleaning and eating. And that's the picture of nourishment and health. When you stop in your health, when you stop the process, your body and your spiritual life just like your body, but your spiritual health is like those dishes that are slimy and, and getting ready to topple over because the food and nourishment is stopping and things are, are gummed up and, and your life can become kind of a drag spiritually. That's what this verse is targeting into. This verse is just simply boiling the Christian life down to this. If you want to be blessed in the Christian life, hunger and thirst for Christ, for his righteousness. And then you'll be satisfied. That's it. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian experience. Hungering and thirsting for God, eating of God's righteousness, and you will be satisfied. These are the impulses in the natural realm that are the same parallel impulses in the Christian experience. Survival is analogous to spiritual survival. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David was wandering in the wilderness. He was fleeing for his life. In Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Look, we... Well, myself in particular, I don't really know what it is to be hungry to the point of death. But in biblical times where Jesus is saying this in his sermon, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about missing a meal. He's not talking about growling that'll happen in your stomach in about a half hour. He's talking about being starving. Now, in the Alaskan wilderness, perhaps you've been in a situation where you've been thirsty to the point of death or in a dehydrated exhaustion. I'm not going to put that past any of us here. However, 
A lot of us are not used to this level of hunger and thirst. This is deep hunger, deep thirst. In Bible times, it'd be like someone in the desert with a hot Scirocco wind whips up and they put the towel around their face, turn their back to the windstorm and the sandstorm, and all they can do is try not to suffocate as they're parched in this arid desert life. There was a book called uh, Water by E.M. Blaylock, where he talked about the liberation of Palestine in World War I, a combined force of the British, Australian, and New Zealand soldiers were closely pursuing the Turks, and the Turks retreated from the desert. As the Allied troops moved northward past Beersheba, they began to outdistance their water-carrying camel train. When the water ran out, their mouths got dry, Their heads ached, they became dizzy and faint, eyes were bloodshot, lips swelled, turned purple, mirages were common. They knew that if they did not make the wells of Shariah by nightfall, thousands of them would die as hundreds already had done. Literally, fighting for their lives, they managed to drive the Turks from Shariah. So then they got to the water source. As water was distributed from the great stone cisterns, the more abled body were required to stand at attention And wait for the wounded and those who would take guard duty to drink first. It was four hours before the last man had his drink. During that time, men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water to drink of which had been their consuming passion for many agonizing days. One officer, he reported this. He said, I believe that we... We're all, we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Shariah and its wells. Blake Locke, uh, who wrote this, said, If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness and his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? Look, hunger is a great drive. It, it is what keeps us alive It's a stronger drive than I think any other desire, even sleep or physical intimacy. It's showing here the high stakes of what is required for being alive. It's nourishment. You know, babies get this, right? Babies know. And when a baby is born, it's going to know so much more in six months or a year or two years. But it knows one essential thing, and that is that if it does not eat at a certain point, it's going to die. There's a sense of survival that comes through that scream in the night for food. It's a wailing, wailing, ferocious scream. And um, that's why Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 1, um, 2, 2, he said, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk. The point of this verse is simply this. If you want blessing, if you don't want to shortchange your spiritual life, if you don't want to be healthy, unhealthy, then you have to have a wholehearted passion and desire for God. Where we want some of God and not all of God, or some of his truth, but not all of his truth, where we get selective in what we want. If we want sometimes worship, but not all worship and a whole life of worship, then we're not blessed. That's the point. If the hose is kind of crimped a little bit in our spiritual desire, we're not going to get the free flowing blessing of living water in our lives and our hearts. It's a demanding verse. It's a frightening verse, but it's also a 
comforting verse. Lloyd-Jones, he said this, who wrote that great book on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I don't know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. The verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture. If it is one of the most blessed statements in the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If this verse is a blessing to you, it's so indicting that you could say, yeah, I'm having the assurance of my salvation. He said, if it's not, if it's not a blessing, then you'd better examine the foundations of your Christian faith all over again. So it sets the bar really high. This verse also diagnoses what's wrong with our country, what's been wrong, what is, what's wrong with our world. We're sort of electing around this problem coming up on Tuesday, but it's the problem of the pursuit of happiness that instead of it being love for God, it's lust for self, right? People go, I want to be blessed. I want to be happy, but I want it my way, not God's way. God says, don't seek happiness directly. He says, seek God, seek him directly, and then he provides happiness. Short-circuiting that process is the problem with our society. Make no mistake about that. It's God saying, seek me. I'm the wellspring of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the source of satisfaction. I should be your all-consuming joy. I'm the source, and I will bless you with happiness. People go, I don't want you. Romans 1, I'm going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I'm going to take truth. I know it because I'm made in the image of God. I, I know something of eternity. I've got eternity in my heart, right? Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to stick that in a case. I'm going to slam the lid down and sit on it. In preaching class this week, one person put it this way. He said that suppressing the truth and unrighteousness is like taking a beach ball and trying to hold it underwater. It's just, oh, the truth just, you know, eventually pops up. Well, people want happiness their own way, and it turns into lust, and lust turns into hate. There's so much hate. There's so much anger. People are so hopeless in, in this world, and they're, they're, you know, there's so much C4 laying around you know, the highways and byways, and people are ready to light up and get mad. We see you know, the riots. We see the different assaults and people attacking back against governing authorities, against the police, and these anger, anger, anger um, news feeds. But it's all based on a misplaced um, sort of path. It's the wrong path for happiness that really is lust. James 4 diagnoses this. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? They're trying to find happiness, trying to find hope, not in God. And they are at war with themselves. You desire, you do not have, so you murder, meaning you hate people. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you're not going to God to ask for it. You're not seeking the Lord. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They're making themselves enemies of God because they're not willing to face God's righteousness. God's solution is simple. Don't seek experiences. Don't be a hedonist, just hedonistically looking for a thrill. Don't do that. Look for God and let God give you happiness. 
taking a direct route to happiness is bypassing the cure for a, a hurting heart. Getting somebody into office isn't going to fix this. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor he was, before he was a preacher and pastor, um, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he wrote very powerfully um, in parallels to medicine and the spiritual life. And he, he spoke about how people will try to treat the symptoms, and we know about this. If you go to a medical doctor and he's not worth his salt, he'll, he'll just treat the symptoms but not pursue what the true disease really is as the cause. He'll bypass the cause and just try to band-aid um, the pain. So there's one idea of this patient, therefore, um, is, that, is that everybody wants relief. Everybody wants relief from pain. It says if a doctor who's attending this patient is, also, is only concerned about relieving the man's pain, he's a bad doctor. His primary duty is to discover the cause of the pain and to treat it. Pain is a wonderful symptom which is provided by nature to call attention to disease and the ultimate treatment for pain is to treat the disease, not the pain. So if a doctor merely treats the pain without discovering the cause of the pain, he's not only acting contrary to nature, he's doing something that is, watch this, extremely dangerous to the life of the patient. The patient may be out of pain and all seems well, but the cause of the trouble is still there. That is the folly to which the world is guilty. The world wants to get rid of their emotional pain, the vacuousness of their own soul. So how do they do that? Well, again, if you climb the stairs of the Beatitudes to verse 6, you see that we're called to be poor in spirit. We're called to renounce self-reliance, verse 3. We're called to mourn. We're called to look at our sin, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I need to repent of the things that I've been doing that are against God's righteousness. And then... I need to yield to the Holy Spirit. I need to be meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the gentleness of the Holy Spirit where you live the Christian life. And then finally, you move from basic, basic passive attitudes, beatitude attitudes that you need to be, to actually doing something, and that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So you strip down self-reliance, you repent of your sin, you walk by the Holy Spirit in the yieldedness, and then you go, I want God. But if you just try to go for happiness in your flesh, you're going to come back empty. And if you just go straight to God without doing business with your sin first, that's probably going to not go well either. You have to climb the stairs and say, okay, I'm called on the carpet. Forgive me, God, of my self-reliance. Forgive me of my sin. I'm yielded to the Holy Spirit. And now I'm hungering and thirsting for God. That's what whets the appetite. That's when you get hungry for him. When you strip off self-reliance and begin to feed on the Lord. It's important to do that. This is very logical stuff. And this verse is just patently clear and the outline kind of lays out in front of us through defining of the terms. So I'm going to define the terms in verse 6 as our outline. Let's begin with the words hunger and thirst. These are, for you grammar geeks, present active participles. The reason I say that is because... What unlocks this text is understanding that it's ongoing hungering. It's the ones who are hungering, the ones who are thirsty, the ones who are thirsting for God or hungering for God. They're the ones who are going to be satisfied. What does this mean? Well, everyone at some level wants goodness because they're made in the image of God. Um, 
This strong ambition can even be seen by unbelievers on a superficial level. William Barclay said the true wonder of man is not that he's a sinner, but that even in his sin, he is haunted by goodness. That even in the mud, he can never wholly forget the stars. H.G. Wells said, a man can be a bad musician and yet passionately be in love with music. Sir Norman Burkett, famous lawyer and judge, said of criminals that there's an inextinguishable something about every man that's a goodness, that's an implacable hunger. It's always at the heels. And it's uh, the worst of men is condemned by some kind of nobility. People want Goodness, even people who are flat on their back in sin, caught, destroyed, distraught at the end of themselves, they think, "Mm, wouldn't it be great to be right with God, to taste and see that God is good? We see in the narrative of Scripture people who longed for God. Jacob longed for God. He wrestled with, um, with a prefiguring of Christ in the Old Testament. He said, Um, God said, let me go as Jacob was wrestling for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless what you bless me. Moses, who had seen the children of Israel forsake God in the wilderness, built the golden calf. Moses crushed the first giving of the law. And then at the second giving, he wanted to go up to the mountain for the glory of God. And he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And then God did promise that he would be there with Moses. In verse 18, Moses said, then please show me your glory. Remember David who was un, he was disallowed from building the temple. Solomon was ultimately given that privilege. David, who had sinned, but ultimately being a man of war, disqualified himself from being able to build the temple. And 1 Kings 8.18 is where God honored his passion for his glory. Nevertheless, it says, The Lord said to David, my father, whereas it, it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Jesus models this for us. When he was in the wilderness, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the second member of the Trinity who knows the Father, who's walking with God, but he's living in desert conditions, starving, being tempted by Satan, but living by the word of God. Job said it this way, your word is more to me than my necessary food. The word of God is bread. It's milk it's meat it's life to us and as we pursue the bible don't pursue the bible as a bible study pursue the bible as necessary nourishment for you to not atrophy for you not for you to not become a dirty pile of dishes spiritually for you to 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 cleanse yourself spiritually with the washing of the water of the word of god as ephesians pictures in marriage it's amazing The word of God is this cleansing agent. It's a clarifying mechanism in our lives. It's a hammer that's used to crush a hard heart. It's life-giving water. It's a splash of ice water on a weary soul. It gives life. It gives health. It gives strength. Do you know when you're just protein deficient and then you get some meat in you and you're like, oh, 
got some energy again. You know, I've got a little bit of carbohydrate going and I'm, I, I feel like I can run again or I can lift something again. But without nourishment, you just feel drab and, and, and just death-like. Well, that's how it is spiritually. This is a wake-up call to be nourishing on the righteousness of God. Time blunts our devotion. We lose our desperation. We forget our first love. We forget what it was like when we first had our eyes open to the truth and we wanted to know everything that was in there. So we need to, we need to want righteousness. And the grammar again here is interesting because hungering and, um, and thirsting here, they could be in the genitive use where it could be hungering and thirsting of a righteousness. Like we want some of God, but this is actually a direct accusative meaning I'm hungering and thirsting for all of God's righteousness. I want all of him, not some of him. I want all of him. I'm not facing a a part-time, half-devoted version of God. I'm not not going to him with a a half-heart or a part-time devotion. This is full devotion, complete devotion to the true and living God. And that's what gets you to blessing. Nothing less than that. Let's look at the word righteousness. Hungering, thirsting, these are present, active, these are ongoing, and it's for righteousness. So righteousness can be defined in one of two ways. First of all, the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is the whole righteousness that you get at salvation. And then it can also be defined in terms of personal growth. So we're talking about justification, we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about the righteousness of Christ when you're saved, and we're talking about growing in Christ's likeness, righteousness as you grow. That's what we're talking about. So two different things. The doctrine of justification is a beautiful doctrine. This is Reformation uh, weekend, Martin Luther um, is known historically as nailing the 95 theses, and I think it's uh, 15... Help me here, 1511 or 1611 rather, no, 1517, there it is, okay, look it up on YouTube, you'll find it, great. All that to say, he, he nailed the 95 Theses and took a stand basically to say that the gospel is salvation that's, that's by grace alone. It's not something that you add to it in your own um, works. It's by grace alone. And by believing on Christ alone, you receive all of the grace of the gospel in, in one fell swoop, he saves you all comprehensively, making you righteous. And this is what the book of Romans teaches. Romans 4 um, is the picture of Abraham and David in verses 1 through 8, where Abraham was not justified by works where he could boast. It says in verse 3, Abraham believed God and he was counted, it was counted to him as righteousness, full righteousness counted to his account. Verse 6, it says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're blessed because we are robed in righteousness. Uh, you, when you are saved... You are declared righteous in this sense. When God looks down from heaven at you and sees you, he sees you as fully clean and fully righteous. It's amazing. 
Now, how that works out in terms of him knowing you and forgiving your sins, I mean, he, he is your heavenly father and interacts that way. But in terms of his forgiveness, your status is completely forgiven, not guilty and completely holy. You lived your life imperfectly. And when Christ died on the cross, he absorbed that imperfect life and he gave to you as a gift his righteous life that he lived, the blessing of forgiveness. This is righteousness. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this truly speaks of that in terms of we, when we hunger for God and we thirst for God initially, we are given righteousness. That's true. But really the emphasis here is Christian growth and sanctification. It's personal righteousness. And I build that out of the fact that it's an ongoing hunger and an ongoing thirst for righteousness. It's ongoing. Matthew 5.10, if you'll look down, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. This is living the Christian life out loud where somebody knows you're a Christian at work. They know you're a Christian at school. They know you're a Christian in the neighborhood. And you're persecuted for that. We, we don't necessarily know what heavy persecution looks like. Perhaps some of you do. But we may in the near future. But this is... Not just our righteous status that we're being persecuted for. Not just because we stand in grace and we've been given grace. This is righteousness that's daily. This is conduct righteousness. This is out loud righteousness. This is someone knowing that we are Christians. That we follow Christ. That brings persecution. That's what it's talking about. In Matthew 6 verse 1 there's a warning not to practice your righteousness before other people in order that you be, would be seen by them. The Pharisees' righteousness, saying, I'm a Christian, and showboating your, your behavior is what's um, shot down here in the same sermon. But Matthew six thirty three it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's spoken of here with righteousness, again, is our daily conduct. We're to seek God. We're not supposed to worry. We're to seek him and live right, rightly, and then expect that he will bless us. It's conduct that has been struck by grace. You know, when do you come to the place where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness like this? Where, where you hunger for God in a way that it transform, transforms your life. And what I want to do is, is take you to a parallel passage in, in, in terms of hunger. And it's in Luke's Gospel 15, verse, verses 14 to 21. I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles and just think about the parable of the prodigal son with me through this idea for a second. Remember the prodigal? He was um, a son who had money given to him by his father because he demanded his inheritance early. And he went out. And spin it on everything and partying and lascivious living and lavish living. And it says, when he had, in verse 14, spent everything, a severe famine across arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing... And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now stop there. Again, what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus is talking about a Jew who was forbidden to interact with a pig at all, 
let alone eat a pig. This is, that was an unclean animal. And so he was brought to the very end of himself. That's the point of the parable. He's at the lowest of the low because he's there as a, a, a stall worker and he's trying to, and his task is to feed the pigs and he's dying of starvation at the end of himself, completely demoralized and demoted to the lowest rung of, of being a Jew where he is facing what the pigs would eat and he is ready to eat. Eat of the pods there. He's dying of hunger. But at that point of desperation is when everything changes. And I would say this. This this probably is more of a picture of coming to Christ first and foremost. But for those of you as Christians who know Christ, who've turned to Christ, but you are completely sitting there dry spiritually, aching in soul. Maybe you're reading the Bible and praying, but you're not engaging God. Think about that. You're a Bible student. You pray. You go through the motions, but you're just dead inside right now. You know, all of the, the sharp edges of, of, of vibrant spiritual life are blunted in your heart. You, you need to come to the end of yourself like this, where you've, you realize that, that nothing but Christ can help you. Perhaps you're going through a circumstance where you're it's like you're on the floor and you just, you just need a Bible verse. You need something authentic in your life to hit you. A promise to grab onto where you can say, okay, I can follow God now again. I can start to climb again. I'm, I'm genuinely able to see my sin, turn from it, and be hungry again for God. That's where the prodigal takes us. That's where he is in this moment. He's perishing from hunger. Verse 17, it says, though, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. That phrase, he came to himself, is repentance. This is the metanoia, the change of thinking. It wasn't a change of action as much as him realizing that he needed to change. He needed to turn. He needed to Replace a physical appetite for a spiritual appetite. And you see the spiritual appetite here where he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. This is undivided devotion. Undivided hunger. He's trading hunger that is, that is empty and vacuous, where he's destitute, where he's at the end of himself. He's devastated. He's got nowhere to go. And he comes to himself and says, I'm going to replace that with God. I'm going to turn from this way to that way. That's what hungering and thirsting is. That's what it means. That's where you can find satisfaction when you're willing to turn away from self and turn to God for mercy. That brings us to our final term. We've looked at hungering and thirsting and righteousness and now being satisfied. What does it mean to be satisfied? 
The word satisfied here in verse 6 is the same word that's going to be used in Matthew 14, 20 of those who were fed at the 5,000. You're fed and you're satisfied. You're fed to the full and you're satisfied. In Matthew 14, 20, they all ate. This is the 5,000, maybe 20,000 with kids and wives. They all ate. They were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Completely stuffed, completely full. This reminds me of the fact that Thanksgiving is coming up. Satisfaction. Eating and satisfied, being satisfied. It's amazing. Again, the grammar here, not to just nerd out with grammar. Present active participles. Hungering and thirsting. Ongoing. You want God's righteousness and you can't get enough of it. At Thanksgiving... When the food is passed around, well, let's, the food's not passed around yet. There's just, the cheese spread is out, right? You go there, the sharp cheddar, whatever, stuff you don't typically eat, you know? And you got your little crackers, and they're probably laced with sugar or whatever's going on there. And you're just, you're nibbling away. And within 45 minutes of that, right, nonstop, just grazing at the table, you could be done. Just with the appetizer, right? You're stuffed. You could be done. You've drunk some punch or whatever, and... I'm out. But then you smell the turkey and you smell the ham and the mashed potatoes are coming around the table. And you're like, oh, man, it's like I haven't even eaten. I've, I've not even eaten anything. I, I, I might have had two meals before now. It doesn't even matter. I'm diving in. You just start hitting it and you get that and the green bean casserole and all that. And you, you feel full. And you're like, oh, man, I'm now ready to just watch some football or go to sleep or whatever. And then there's pumpkin pie, right? And the Cool Whip's on that and, and you eat again. So you're hungry and you're thirsty and you, you eat until you're full. And then the amazing paradox is suddenly it's as if you haven't eaten anything and you go for another round. That is the picture of this verse, believe it or not. It's hungering and thirsting for the bread of life, for the living water, for the word of God until you're full. And you're satisfied, but you keep hungering and you keep thirsting in the Christian life all the way until you go to glory. You're never fully satisfied until you get to heaven. That's why these are participles. It's the comfort that you know from knowing that God loves you. It fills your heart. You're excited about that. It fills you up, but you want more. It's the joy that you know of growing in grace and you're filled up by that. And you go, man, the sufficiency of Christ is so wonderful. It's the happiness, you know, that God is sufficient to meet every one of my needs. And it fills me to the brim, but I want more of him. It's the security of knowing that your salvation is forever. And you go, that fills my heart. It puts me on solid ground, but I want more of him. It's the paradox that says I'm filled with you. And the more I'm filled with you, the hungrier I become to have more of you. If you want blessing, you can't, you can't go half-heartedly. If you want joy, you have to go all for God, not some for God, all of it, all of him, receiving grace upon grace. Christ came to give us his fullness. It says he came in his fullness, and we all have received grace upon grace. People that were with Christ couldn't get enough of Christ. They wanted more of Christ. John seven thirty seven through 39. It's where Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture is set, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had, was not yet glorified. The Spirit of God is what whets our appetite. We need more of him. It's a cycle of the Christian experience. This is where I think Second Peter ends in Second Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always wonder, what does it mean to grow in grace? When we receive grace, don't we receive all of grace and that's salvation? Yes. But, but as we learn more about Christ, we want to know more about the grace that he's given us. And we experience grace in our lives as we hunger and thirst for him. We're growing in our Christian sanctification. We're growing in righteousness. We're growing in our obedience. We're growing to know the will of God. And this is grace upon grace that's given to us in our Christian experience, just like eating another round of whatever is passed in front of us. The world is in a cycle of guilt. The world is seeking happiness through unrighteousness. Make no mistake. The ideologies and the agendas, even things that people are voting for and voting against, is unrighteousness. People want to feed themselves through lust They don't want righteousness. They want unholiness and unholiness and unrighteousness. You know what that breeds? Guilt. You know what guilt breeds? Sadness. You know what sadness breeds? Hopelessness. That's where things are. That's the digressive cycle of our culture compared to what we get in Christ. We get Jesus. We get hope. We get joy. We have promises. And we we just, our hope is building upon hope as we seek all of Christ. Not some of him, all of him. We seek him, we don't seek self, and we find satisfaction. You say, but I'm struggling because I'm stuck in a hole right now. Well, climb the the stairs of the Beatitudes. Renounce self-reliance, be poor in spirit. Weep over your sin, mourn over your sin. See it, face it, declare it, call it out. Be meek, which means submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Say, God, take control of my life. And then hunger and thirst and feast at the feet of Jesus. But the river that will never run dry, right? The wellspring of inexhaustible water and endless bread that fills our hearts, fills our souls. Settle for nothing less and you will find joy in Jesus Christ.